Hey there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that takes complex theological ideas and breaks them down into points of simply understanding. I am your host, Pastor Vinny. And I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you, when life throws a monkey wrench at your head, Jesus is still the logo, the logic, the reason, the word that builds your faith all the way back to the kingdom of God. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Simply Devotion with Pastor Vinny from simplyvinny.com. This is the podcast that tries to emphasize why it is that Jesus is worth our full devotion. In the last few episodes of this podcast, we've been particularly focusing on the idea of eschatology. Eschatology being the study of last day events. But we have been particularly looking at eschatology from the perspective of Jesus. Now, outside of the book of Revelation, the only real place we see Jesus talk an intense sermon on last day events is in the Sermon on the Mount of Olives. Not to be confused with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, but the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, which is recorded for us in Luke 21, Mark 13, and Matthew 24, which is the largest version of it. But then it extends into Matthew 25 into three parables. And that, my friends, is what we want to talk about today. Now, before we get too far into all the things that we're going to talk about today, I would like to invite you to go ahead and leave a rating on my podcast on iTunes or any other platform that has the rating ability. I know iTunes does. It will help people decide to check out this podcast. We are now 20 episodes into season one, and we will be wrapping up season one, talking about the rest of our podcast for this season on eschatology, the study of last day events. But by rating this podcast or by recommending it to a friend or by sharing it on social media, you could assist others to find this podcast and be blessed by this whole season of ready-made, ready-uploaded, ready-to-listen-to podcasts. It's a really simple way to share the gospel. Now think about it. One of the things we said in the very last podcast, episode 19, was that the very last sign before Jesus returned was recorded in Matthew 24, verse 14. And it was this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, going to the whole world. And you know, we really just want to emphasize the idea, not just this podcast. There are many great podcasts out there, many great YouTube channels out there. Um, there are many great social media accounts, if it's TikTok, you know, uh, Twitter, whatever, uh, Facebook channels. You know, getting this gospel out to the world is imperative. And this perhaps is the easiest way it could ever happen when you think about it right as i said in the last podcast i sit in this office here recording through um, my microphone and i'm going to upload this into my podcast software and boom a message about the second return of jesus is preached in zimbabwe it's preached in I don't know, the Ukraine. It's preached in, I don't know, Kenya, Africa. You know, the point is it's global, right? It's instant. It's 
there for anyone who wants it. So I just want to encourage my podcast listeners to share whatever it is that is blessing them that they find online that they think would help to share the gospel. One of the things my local church where I pastor at Solid Rock in Arlington, Virginia, has discovered, the more our church members share our live feed into um, their news feed and whatever platform of social media they're on, the more people who join our broadcast and the more people who interact and the more people who ask questions. And it's just another way that we can globally share the gospel. What we're going to be talking about today is this idea of the midnight cry. The midnight cry, a cry that goes out at midnight. What is midnight? The darkest point of the night. If you feel like this world is getting dark, if you feel like this world is getting scary, if you feel like this world is getting pragmatic, you know, as I sit here, the trial is going on for um, former police officer Derek Chevron, and uh, we are praying for justice for George Floyd. We are also noticing an increase of attacks on innocent Asian people who have absolutely nothing to do with what's going on with this virus, but are being scapegoated and, you know, beaten up and attacked and even shot. Like this world, you know, aside from its normal issues that we have just, you know, all the division and all the, the disagreement and all the toxicity we've just taken as normal for some reason, um, it's getting pretty dark. And that's really the point of the midnight cry. When it gets too dark, a cry goes out. A cry goes out from the bridegroom. Now, before we jump into that, and we are going to go deep today. So, but before we do, want to set it up for you. First things first. If you have a Bible, that will be helpful to you. If not, I will read the text to you as we go through it today. But we're going to be looking at that parable, the midnight cry, which is found in Matthew 25. Now, Matthew 25 is made up of three parables. Okay, three parables. And it's imperative that we understand that Matthew 25 is a continuation of of the Sermon on End Time Events that Jesus was giving in Mark 13, Luke 21, and Matthew 24. Matthew 24's version of this sermon about end time events or eschatology is longer, so much longer that it takes up another chapter, chapter 25. If we stop reading Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, we literally miss half of it. There are three parables. How many? Three. These parables are like appeal stories that a pastor may give at the end of a sermon to appeal to people. Well, in this case, there are three appeal stories to the sermon of eschatology Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives. Now, these three parables are the parable of the midnight cry, sometimes called the parable of the ten virgins, and we'll talk about that. The parable of talents, or um, the parable of bags of gold in some translations, but the parable of talents, we'll call it. And the parable of the sheep and the goats. And we're going to take an episode and go through each one of these parables so that we know what's going on. But what I'm saying at this point in the podcast is each one of these parables teach us something new about how Jesus Christ expects us to live in the time of the end. 
if Matthew 24 was all about the time of the end and how the end of the world happens and what are the signs of the end of the world, and we saw those various signs, particularly the love of many growing cold, which we can affirm we're seeing every day, not to mention the increase of pestilences like the pandemic and the increase of wars and rumors of wars which are always happening but that last big sign the gospel going to the whole world so if we really believe that christ is about to return or will return soon or that his return is imminent you know again going back to the idea found in matthew 24 that no man knoweth the day or the hour we are not making any predictions but if we believe we live in the end time, then we should know how to live. And that precisely is the point of these three parables. The parable of the midnight cry, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and the goats are all teaching us how to live in the time of the signs. How do we live? in the time of increased toxicity, increased um, hatred, increased persecution, the love of many growing cold, and so forth. How, how do we survive this time? Well, that is absolutely exactly what these three parables are about. And so let's go deep in these last few episodes of this season's podcast let's get deep let's 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 look at the text let's think about the meaning behind it and let's make the best use of the time we have in the rest of this season to really accent these things so the uh, parable of the midnight cry begins in matthew 25 verse 1 and it says in that verse at that time, which time? That time. What does Jesus mean in Matthew 25, verse 1, that time? Well, remember, this is a connection to Matthew 24, right? And this is a connective bridge in verse 1 of 25. At the time of the things in Matthew 24 that we have now spent three podcasts studying together. And so you can review those if you want, but we've spent three podcasts, two with Pastor Travis from Adventology and one with me comparing the uh, contrast in Mark 13 and Luke 21. So at that time, at the time of the end, at that time, at the time of persecution, at that time, at the time when the love of many are growing cold, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, already in this one verse, Matthew 25, verse 1, there are several key words that are imperative that you notice, and, and I will be breaking them down for you, but here they are. At that time, that phrase, at that time, the kingdom of heaven. Let's keep that phrase in our mind, the kingdom of heaven, the word like, the word like, the word lamps, the word virgin or brides, and the word bridegroom. Those are key words that will become imperative to understanding the rest of this parable. So we're going to get a little bit deeper into our study and touch on some things that I hope to get much deeper into next season as well. But um, I want to tell you about this word second temple, the second temple era. It just simply refers to the time of the Jews when they came out of captivity from Babylon and rebuilt uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah the second temple all the way to the point of 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, which we talked about in last week's um, podcast. So the second temple Judaism is the Judaism that Jesus is born in. And 
there is a term that is used very frequently in Second Temple Judaism. You know, when I say frequently, I mean even outside of Christian documents, Jewish documents from that time use the term, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. It is a Second Temple Judaic term. Okay, so the Jews very much at the time of Jesus knew what this term meant. Now, Matthew is a Jew, and so he writes from a Jewish perspective. This whole parable is from a very intense Jewish perspective. It's actually about a Jewish wedding, of course. Okay, in fact, Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven 32 times in his gospel. So we are supposed to take notice of this term kingdom of heaven. Every Jew reading this parable, every early Christian reading this parable got it. It meant the messianic era. It meant the time that the Messiah was going to come, okay? And so Matthew is drawing that to our attention. Now the other term I told you I wanted you to think about was the term light like we're going to see this in all three parables why because whenever you see something is like something else you're looking at a parable you're looking at something that is not to be taken literally so as we're studying this parable we must not take it literally we must not see you know the brides as literal brides we must not see the lamps as literal lamps this is a parable and in verse one, the word like is used to draw our attention to that. Now let's talk about lamps. Um, lamps are small clay vessels that are filled with oil. I know we think of lamps as something that is on uh, a lampstand or a light or, you know, we think of electricity. You know, if we really want to think old fashioned, maybe we think about a camping lamp that's full of, full of kerosene. No, Jewish lamps are like more like at second temple time, more like an ashtray made of clay. And they're filled with olive oil with a little wick over the side. This will become important. That can burn up once the oil's completed, right? So, so lamps have symbolic usage in this parable, which we'll talk about. But the physical lamp of the second temple time is important to understand. It's a small dish, not a giant lamp. And it can only hold so much oil. Now, brides or virgins, which is also mentioned in verse one is a key word I told you I wanted you to think about. Um, we must avoid putting too much Western purity onto this term. Um, this term originates from the Old Testament and it's not really a statement of purity. I mean, I'm sure they were pure. I'm not saying anything that they were not. But it doesn't mean purity. It just means unmarried, marriable. Okay. So there are 10 marriable women in this parable. And so sometimes the word maiden or bride could be used. The bridegroom is singular. And I'm drawing your attention to that in verse one. It's singular, which again, we got to remember this is a parable. It's not literal because there are 10 brides and only one groom. And that's for a theological reason. Um, so I want to just review now that we've looked at the key theological terms that we pointed out. Again, reviewing just verse 1 at that time. What time? The time of the end. The kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? The messianic age. It will be like 10 virgins. What are the 10 virgins? 10 marriable women who took out their lamps. What are their lamps? Small clay vessels that can hold a very limited, small amount of oil. And where do they go? To meet the bridegroom. How many bridegrooms are there? Just one. Now we have all the keys to decipher this parable pretty easily. The next thing we just need to know a little bit about is a first century Jewish wedding traditions, because this whole parable in Matthew 25, the midnight cry or the 10 virgins is based on 
a Jewish wedding. In fact, in the book of Revelation, in verse 2 of Revelation 21, Revelation 21, verse 2, we have an allusion to the end of the world and the unity of Christ and the church like a Jewish wedding. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So the new Jerusalem, the new city, the, the church made perfect that eventually is going to come at the end of the age. And we spoke about that throughout these last three podcasts. That end of the age is also seen as a wedding, as a Jewish first century wedding. A few things we should know about Jewish first century weddings. They had early engagements, okay? And so by early engagements, I just mean that um, they were engaged early because marriages were generally arranged. And when I say arranged, I mean soft arranged. It wasn't like that you were forced to marry someone you didn't want to marry, but it was more like families were always looking for who would marry into their families. Um, honor shame culture was very big, so caste system did exist, and people didn't want to end up having their family marry down. They always wanted their family to marry up. So there were earlier engagements because weddings were pre-planned. Often your family were heavily involved in selecting your future husband or wife. And there was something called a betrothment. So people became betrothed to each other. This is the engagement. And at that point, even dowries could be worked out depending on the caste or class of your family. Um, and during that time when the dowries were worked out and there was a betrothal, then that early engagement turned into a longer engagement. Now we need to understand this. I know that we're covering a lot here but that's okay. Just hang in here. It's all going to come together for you. All right. So in the betrothal portion of the engagement, at that point, once the dowry is agreed to and paid, even though the marriage hasn't taken place in Second Temple Jewish law, you are married, even though you're not married. You're just engaged, but it's like you're married. In fact, it's so much like you're married when you're betrothed in Second Temple Jewish Judaism that to break the betrothal, even though it's just an arrangement, it's just an engagement, you would have to actually get a divorce. Why am I telling you this? Because it's really important. Betrothment in the engagement process is as important as marriage. They don't make a differentiation. So when Moses says that you would need to have a certificate written to divorce somebody, yeah, that's exactly the deal, right? So when you're betrothed, it's the same thing, which is why with Mary and Joseph and their marriage and her pregnancy, it wouldn't have been easy for Joseph to get rid of her without outing her as an adulteress, which he didn't want to do because he was a noble man. I'm making the point because it's important to the parable that even though you're not fully married and you're only engaged when you were betrothed you were treated like you're married now here's the next big part of jewish weddings that we really need to nail down during the betrothal after the dowry is set and all finances are put out of their way the man leaves the woman during this stage of the engagement he is not courting her anymore the deal is sealed she is married to him he doesn't need to court her anymore he doesn't need to date her anymore he needs to go do something else that is even more important in second temple judaism and that is he must go build a room where they will consummate their relationship and he will build that room onto the house of his father's house. Okay, so he will add an addition to his father's house 
and that will be their marriage room. That is where they will, you know, you know what I mean. They, they will consummate the relationship in that room, and that will be the room where they start their marriage until they're able to be out on their own, okay? And so he goes to build that room during the engagement. She does not know when he will return for her. He can't, she can't know because he doesn't know. He doesn't know how long it will take to build that room. He will try to build it as quickly as he can, of course, because he wants to, you know, consummate the relationship. You know, he knows she's not going anyplace, but he wants to get on with it, right? So he's going to build that room as quickly as he can. And when he's done building that room, he will come and get her. Now, there are no text messaging in the ancient world, and there are no emails. There isn't even long distance. He's got no way to come back from his father's house and tell her, so she must be ready at any moment during the betrothal to be married. And he will just show up at the village one day and say, Voila, it is done. And then they will all rush to the father's house, have a ceremony. There'll be a feast during the feast. They will consummate the relationship in privacy in their father's house. And then they will come out of their father's house under the wedding porch. And they will be declared as they are man and wife, which in Jewish custom means they have completed the consummation of the marriage. It's a little bit of a different kind of marriage than we're used to, but that's how it happened. And it also explains a little bit about why in John 14, Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I know some of the King James translations will say, in my father's house, there are many mansions. It's actually rooms. He's actually using wedding talk. He's actually saying, I am the bridegroom and I have many rooms prepared for the church, my bride to come in. You know, then our relationship will be formal. It will, won't just be an engagement. It will be forever. It will be unremovable, right? That's literally, he's talking about the Jewish wedding in John 14. Not to get sidetracked, we need to get back to Matthew 25, but now we have our major pieces in play. Back to verse 1, chapter 25, verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. In verse 2, verse 3, the foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. Remember what we said about the capacity of the lamp. It's very small. Verse 4, the wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps so that they could refill them. Verse 5, the bridegroom uh, was a long time in coming and they became drowsy and they all fell asleep. At the midnight cry, they rang out, here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. Verse 9, No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go to those who sell and buy some oil for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy oil, dun 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 dun, the bridegroom arrived. The ten virgins who were ready went in to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Verse 11 Later, the others came and said, Lord, Lord. Open the door for us. It's us. But he replies, Truly, I tell you that I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day 
or the hour. And so Christ, you know, is re-emphasizing in this parable about him wanting to marry us, about him already being betrothed to us. You know, like we're betrothed to Christ already. The marriage is legally binding already at baptism for us, right? But we still have to be remain faithful to our spouse while we await for him to build the room in his father's house that we may be able to complete the marriage ceremony with him. In when Jesus says in this particular parable, the parable of the midnight cry, you do not know the day or the hour. The application is directly to the fact that when in Second Temple Judaism, a marriage was betrothed and bonded and the dowries were paid and all the legal stuff were out of the way, you may be legally married to that person, but you, you, you didn't know when they would complete the building of the wedding room onto their father's house. So you could not know when they would come back, just like you and I cannot know when Jesus will come back. Now, if he comes back and you're not there, if he comes back and even though you have a legally bonding betrothment with him, you void the contract because you're not there. He's only coming once to get you. And if you're not there, what is he supposed to do? So then the question becomes, why were they not there? Well, the text told us why they were not there. There were 10 of them, right? Five were wise and, and five were foolish. And the foolish ones just took their lamp, but the wise ones took the lamp and extra jars of oil to refill their lamp. Like, I literally have uh, a lamp that I brought back, a Jewish uh, styled lamp that I brought back from Israel and it sits on my desk. It's very small. It does not hold much oil. And furthermore, you couldn't put too much oil in it because it would overheat and explode. So they are small. So it means that if you were the foolish bride, you, you, you did not anticipate much of a weight because <laughs> you, you just took what your little ashtray size lamp could hold. But the wise ones were like, we don't know how long it's going to take for him to build the house. And we're so in love with him. And we're so in love with this idea of living in his father's house, in his father's village, in his father's kingdom, that we want to make sure we have lots of oil. And so we will bring an extra jar of oil with us. Now, throughout the New Testament, the idea of oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You know, like James is like, you know, when someone is sick, let them call for the elders so that they may be anointed with oil so that the Holy Spirit may heal them. And, you know, every Jew, and these people hearing this are Jews, they will become Jewish Christians, hopefully, but they're Jews. Every Jew, when they hear oil, they get it. They know that oil is what keeps the lamp burning. Okay. Now, the lamp is pretty easy to get, right? Like, we all know um, Psalms 119, right? It's one of the most famous Psalms in the Bible because it is the longest chapter in the Bible. And one of the most famous verses from Psalms 119 is Psalms 119, verse 105. And it says, Thy word, the word of God, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So now we have two powerful symbols. Remember, even the lamps that are in the temple are filled daily by the priests with oil, which is a symbol of the power of God. And so why in the Old Testament they didn't emphasize the Holy Spirit as much and they didn't fully understand the Holy Spirit as much, the oil was still a symbol of the Holy Spirit 
powering that lamp. In fact, in uh, Zechariah 4, verse 6, it speaks about the Spirit of God in that way. The word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel, saying, It is not by power, it is not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So, the wise ones took their Bible. The wise ones took their sword. The wise ones took the word and enough Holy Spirit to keep the word powered up. But the foolish ones, they took the word, but not enough Holy Spirit, not enough oil to keep the word powered up. And I'm going to just tell you right now, Many people can know their Bible, and you have to know your Bible. It is the lamp, right? It's a lamp onto your feet. That's what we just discussed. But you can study the Bible inside out. You can memorize the Bible inside out. But spiritual things, according to the Apostle Paul, are spiritually discerned. So when I read my Bible, when I study prophecy, when I look at these things that we have been studying over the last three podcasts, I must ask for also the discernment of the Holy Spirit. I must not get caught up in fanaticism and start setting dates as Pastor Travis and I talked about the danger that some people fall into, but I also must not become slack and say my master Deleus is coming. We cannot do such things. We must both have the word of God and it must be powered by true spirituality. And I think one of the reasons that the brides are more than one is it's showing also the sense of community. They are a community. They are a faith group, right? So we need the church and we need the church to to pray for us, to witness with us, to witness to us, to keep our spirits rejuvenated together. And yes, there will be times that revival is needed. There'll be times that even whole churches fall into slumps because remember, all 10, all 10, Ten of these virgins, these brides, these bridemaids, fall asleep. But the ones who always took care of the relationship, the ones that always made sure they prayed for the Spirit, the ones that always sought the Spirit to help them discern spiritual things, and they just didn't depend on the arrogance of raw knowledge to be the enduring factor to the second coming. The ones who are ready when the bridegroom comes. Now, I want to ask you, are you preparing to be ready for when the bridegroom comes? I want you to hear me this morning or this evening or whenever you're listening to this. In order to be ready for when the bridegroom comes, it takes more than knowing the signs. It takes more than knowing the prophecies. It even takes more than knowing the word of God. You must know. God. You must know the bridegroom. You must love him enough to keep your devotional life, to keep your faith life, to keep your reading of his lamp charged up with adequate oil. You must praise him. You must lift up your tongue and say things of exaltation. You must be willing to say not just amen, but hallelujah. You must be willing to say hosanna to the king. You must even sing with your whole heart. You must do things to not just juvenate your knowledge, but also your spirit. And the lamp is also there when it's powered by the Spirit, 
to set boundaries to prevent fanaticism. But the two great sins of the modern church is over-formalism, over-intellectualism, and over-spiritualism. But what we need is the lamp powered by the legitimate power of the Holy Spirit. And when these two things come together, they produce a Christian who is able to stand, who is able to wait, who is able to hang on even through the wars and rumors of wars, even through the pestilences, even through the earthquakes, and even through the love of many growing cold, and even through the signs and the stars and the, the, the moon and the sun going blood red, and even through the love of many growing cold, and even through the times of persecution. You see, how do we overcome those things that it's said in Matthew 24 can only be overcome by the very elect? By the unity of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in our life. They give us the staying power to stay while we wait for the bridegroom to come. We take note and we take time to contemplate. This whole parable happens in the context of one being a parable, hence the word like the kingdom of heaven, and two, in the context of a typical, normal Jewish wedding at the time of Jesus. We read this parable and find it cryptic and over-engage in symbolism. But the people at the time of Jesus read this and heard this and knew right away that he was talking about betrothed women waiting for their husband to come and collect them. And yes, it was seen that way, as if they were already married, even though they weren't. It was seen that way. They were betrothed, just like Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And where was Joseph? Probably off building a house on his father's house when, you know, Mary was found with child. Now, when they hear this parable, this is what they think about. And they don't hear, like, why didn't the wise ones give some of the oil to the foolish ones? They don't hear that at all. They are in absolute shock that any bride would have taken a single lamp with no extra oil. They're just like, they obviously do not love this husband they have been arranged to be with because who would do such a thing being that lamps are so small and being that the time that it may take to build a house onto someone else's house and then travel back cannot be determined nor is there any way to communicate with someone and so when they read this parable they are like what were the five foolish virgins thinking that they would put the jeopardy of the whole relationship at risk? And they are not thinking, why isn't the bridegroom kind enough to reopen the door and come back, you know, a second time, give them a second chance? They're not reading that and thinking that. They're thinking... Wow, how disrespectful to this man who agreed to marry you, went to his father's house, invested all of his wealth in building you a wedding room and a wedding porch and preparing the feast that, that for all of our families to come and celebrate. And like, you fell asleep and, and, and you didn't even have enough oil and, and you had to leave and get oil, they, they, they would have saw that as just like the ultimate disrespect to someone who has just invested, I don't know, a month, three months, four months, all everything they have into building this room to consummate a relationship with you. 
Keep that all in your mind. I'm going to read the parable for you one more time. Let it sink in now that you know all the terminology and now that you understand the Jewish wedding system. At that time, at the time of the signs, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins or 10 maidens who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. They all became so drowsy and they all fell asleep at the midnight cry it rang out here's the bridegroom come out to meet him then all the bridemaids woke up and they trimmed their lamps but the foolish ones said to the wise give me some of your oil our lamps are going out no replied the wise ones there may not be enough for both of us instead you go those who sell oil and buy it for yourselves but while they were on their way to buy the oil that's exactly when the bridegroom arrived the virgins or the bridemaids who were ready went into the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came, pounding on the door. Lord, Lord, they said. Open up the door for us. But he replied, Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore, Keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Friends, no one else can lend you their portion of the Holy Spirit. They just can't. It's not a matter of them being cruel. I can't do your discipleship for you. I can't do your walk in your place. I can't fill your lamps for you. I can guide you. I can teach you. I can care about you. I can mentor you. I can provide podcasts like this for you and blogs and other resources on my website. I can assist you in your development to become a great bridesmaid. But what I can't do is give you my oil, give you my spiritual growth, give you the hard pressed, crushed olives that come from my struggles, my faith, and my investment in my devotional time with Jesus Christ. Don't expect a pastor to pull you through. Don't expect 
a family member to pull you through. Don't expect because you were born into the right church or the right family or you're surrounded by good people that that's going to get you through. You need your lamps constantly being refilled. If this podcast can help refill your lamp, praise God. But you must also engage in the things that you know, if it's song, if it's singing, if it's praising, if it's preaching, if it's teaching, if it's mentoring, whatever it is, feeding the homeless, helping the poor, getting involved in social justice, whatever it is, you must do the things that will water your soul, that will fill your lamp. It's not about works. It's about living out the light of the lamp while you wait for Christ. By the way, it's a lamp. Lamps provide light. When does he come? Well, it's the whole name of this episode, isn't it? At the midnight cry. At the darkest time. I know there have been other dark times in history. And I know what we've been going through may not be the darkest time in history. But I also know it is the darkest time that I have ever seen in my 51 years on this floating rock. It is getting dark out there. One thing I'm pretty sure about, it is going to get darker out there and darker out there. I don't know if there will be a time of reprieve and a time of peace, a time to witness, a time to share. But I think even without the pandemic and even without all the other complexities that we've been going through globally in the last couple years, I think the world has been getting darker for some time now. Just as Pastor Travis and I spoke about in our joint interview on Matthew 24, the love of many has been growing cold. And when that happens, all other things start breaking down. Persecution will start. But Jesus had some encouraging things to say. Jesus said, those who have faith will endure. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceive you. Jesus said, the gospel, this gospel, will go to all the nations and then the end will come. Jesus said, the difficultness of the days ahead of us have been shortened for the elect's sake. Matthew 24, verse 22. It is a great verse. The days of difficultness have been shortened by God's great grace for us. Jesus promised us in Matthew 24 and verse 13, those who put their faith in him, those who trust in his word, those who grow their relationship with him through his Holy Spirit, those who endure to the end will absolutely be saved. Sure, it may appear dark out there, and the truth is, it could get more dark. But regardless of how dark it is out there, and regardless of how dark it may get out there, we know that the shout, here comes the bridegroom, come out to meet him. 
happens at the darkest point. It happens at the midnight cry. And so today, in this podcast, what I hope to encourage you is that no matter how dark it is in your life right now, no matter how dark it may be from your perspective, no matter how dark the future may get, is your lamp burning? We know the darkness is just yet another sign that our redemption draw near. So, how is your lamp? Because as it continues to get dark and darker, as we head towards midnight, we can expect at a time that no man knoweth the day or the hour, at a time when maybe we get used to the darkness, at a time that maybe we've settled in and got comfortable in darkness, at a time that when maybe we have fallen asleep. It's at that time, behold, the midnight cry goes out. Will you have your lamp ready to be trimmed? Will you have a jar of oil to refill it? You see, the beautiful thing about today's podcast is there's time. There's time. The midnight cry has not went out. Listen to me. There is time. Wake up. Trim your lamp. Fill your jar with oil. Because when the midnight cry goes out and you have to go find oil, it will be too late. But it's not too late. The midnight cry has not went out. The midnight cry will go out. But it's not happened yet. You have time. No man knoweth the day or the hour. We are not going to be fanatical about having lots of time or a little of time. But the midnight cry has not gone out. We are that cry crying the gospel to the world. When it is finished, behold, the bridegroom comes. Will you fill up your jar with oil? Will you make a decision today? Yes. Today. Yes. At this moment. Yes. While still listening to this podcast. To not only have a lamp that can be trimmed, but to have an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that is full of worship, it's full of praise, it's full of exalting Jesus Christ's name through the world, through your friends, through your family, through a vibrant ministry, if it be to the homeless people or if it be to people in need or if it be to a nursing home or if it be on a Twitter account, but being a part of the proclamation of the gospel to the world in a way that is not just about filling yourself up with facts, but combining the word, the lamp, with the ever-burning energy that is needed to endure to the end. The Holy Spirit, which comes out of your personal walk 
with Jesus. If that walk needs a little bit more, fill that jar now. Because soon, behold, the bridegroom cometh. You have been listening to a podcast by Pastor Vinny McIsaac from simplyvinny.com. Stop by our website, check out our blogs, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, all that kind of jazzy promotional stuff. But most important, let's keep growing together in Jesus Christ all the more as we see the day of his return approaching. See you at the next podcast. God bless.